2: Blog and podcast. Neil Garfield here, and this is Thursday, October 31st, 2019. Happy Halloween! The ghosts and goblins of 2008 are still causing trouble. Actually, they started back in 1998, but that's another story. Some things don't change and others do. Excuse me. As I've been reporting on my blog, There are several attorneys who have taken the time to research, analyze, and think about the pleadings and proof issues involved with self-serving claims of securitization, which of course are defined by the banks in self-serving terms with self-serving labels. Those lawyers are winning cases, and while they win them, they're driving the bank attorneys crazy because they're bringing up issues that the bank attorneys really don't know what to do with. That's because the banks, as I said back in 2006, somebody reminded me of an article I wrote back then before the the meltdown. The banks don't have the goods. They operated as though the laws were different than what they are, And the courts have largely let them get away with it, except in cases where real litigators, like my guest, Russ Baldwin, uh, use the tools of their trade to confront false issues presented by lawyers for false parties with no claim and no connection to the loans. The problem is that everyone thinks they know the law, but the evidence is that they don't know how to use the law. You've heard me say that before, but I keep saying it because I want to drill the problem home. When you research something on the Internet, you go, aha, that's not the end of the case. You may think it is, but if you don't know how to use it, you won't even win, much less that being the end of the case. The truth is that foreclosure mills are largely reliant Upon argument, like oral argument, in lieu of both pleading and proof. Russ Baldwin, attorney in Oregon, is taking the fun out of that for the bank attorney. As an introduction to today's show, let me say that there's a difference between pleading, which is the stuff you file in court proof, which is evidence, and argument, which might be oral argument or memorandum of law. The rules are simple, but they're violated every day by foreclosure mill lawyers, and they get away with it until they are challenged. Now they are challenged. Here are the simple rules. All proof and all argument must be based pleading or evidence. You can't argue what you have not committed to in writing with the court. But bank lawyers do all the time. All argument must be, second, all argument must be based on pleading and proof. Proof can temporarily exist in the form of presumptions, but not unless there is a pleading of facts and exhibits that gives rise to the presumption. For example, you can't say we're relying on a facially valid document without pleading that document, showing that document. So here's the point that Russ has expertly laid out in this recent pleading, in which I got so excited about. Lawyers for the foreclosure mill cannot argue presumptions when they have never said anything about the status of their client or the claim. We can't presume that the mortgage and note exists, much less that the note and mortgage are owned by the claimant, much less that the claimant is the owner of the debt, much less that the claimant has paid value for the debt. Unless the lawyer advocating that position says that his client exists, that he is a lawyer and he files something with the court specifically asserts that his client is in fact a party with status to assert a rightful claim for collection and enforcement of a debt now in non-judicial states you'll come back at me and say well wait a minute they don't have to plead that because they don't have to file a foreclosure complaint that's true But what Russ is doing is he's challenging the notion that they can come in and argue things they have not pled in opposition to what the homeowners forced to file. This is a real tricky issue of due process which I think has not been fully discussed, argued, decided in the courts because the homeowner in non-judicial states is forced, in essence, to deny a claim that has not yet been stated. It is merely implied from the notice of substitution of trustee, the notice of default, the notice of sale, and so forth. Russ Baldwin, attorney in the state of Oregon, Joins me tonight with my friend Bill Patelow, who, as you all know, uh, just participated in yet another case in Florida where his work as an expert fact witness uh, resulted in another win for a homeowner. They're going to talk about the very exquisite and nuanced pleading Russ just filed in a case where the homeowner is seeking ejectment of a person who supposedly bought the property. Russ is one of the lawyers, you may remember he's been on the show before, who brought to my attention the issues regarding recoupment, which could avoid statutes of limitations and have the potential of defeating the claim for money entirely and possibly even beat the entire claim for foreclosure. Here, in this pleading, and you're learn about it in a minute. Baldwin expertly kneecaps the opposing attorneys by challenging them to actually plead the facts that they want the court to assume are true. The bank lawyers don't want to do that because if they did that, then they'd be lying. And Russ is now well positioned to make this issue a defining turning point in what is required from attorneys represent to a court that they represent a named party with whom the uh, whom the attorney wants the court to presume is the beneficiary under a deed of trust as an added measure here the case also involves a timely notice of rescission within three from the closing under the of rescission statute 15 USC 1635 so Despite resistance from opposing counsel in the court, the note and mortgage do not legally exist. This is a program intended to expand your awareness of procedural law, which is the basis for all judgments and, enters and, and, judgments and orders entered by the court. Rules the rules of procedure and the laws of evidence, presumptions, and inferences are not well understood by most lawyers, much less by pro se litigants who have no legal training. For procedure and knowledge of where the burden shifts, and the burden of persuasion and the burden of proof, and where inferences arise that defeat presumptions, etc. Procedure is where the homeowner can and does win. If you understand your own side of the case, that is your defense narrative. In most cases, the path to victory lies not on some magic bullet, but rather than the old-fashioned litigation procedure that favors the party claiming foreclosure but can be turned against that same party, you follow what might appear to be boring step-by-step procedures procedures remember this program is being recorded and you can always come back to this recording or any of our other shows by going to blogtalkradio.com and searching for the neil garfield show comments and suggestions are solicited write to me at neil at hotmail.com. i'm broadcasting live from devout county florida and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And the show is brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies Blog from listeners like you. Thank you. Yes, they are picking up. And as a result, we are now planning a, a series of seminars that will be available on demand. Uh, the first one should be ready this coming month. And we'll do more as the donations run in, uh, roll in. The seminars cannot occur unless we continue to have those donations. So hit the Donate button on the blog, livinglies.me or livinglies.wordpress.com, or call 954 and pledge whatever you think you can afford this show has value for you. If our work on the blog and our other radio shows without payment or other support has value to you, then please chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. It's not just me who's on this mission, it's you. Russ Baldwin, Bill Padalo, welcome back to the show and a special thanks to Bill for co hosting the West Show the West Coast Show with Charles Marshall.
0: Thanks, Neil. Thank you, Neil.
2: So, Russ, I'm gushing over your pleading. I really like the wording, and I like the idea behind it. It it, it was artistic. I wish you
0: had a gavel. Say that again? I said thank you, and I wish you had a gavel. (laughs) (laughs) I have a
2: gavel uh I, there's no place to use it. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I thought the, the, the pleading, uh, the, uh, the second motion for summary judgment was brilliant, targeting a weak spot in this and all wrongful foreclosures. So why don't you lead us off by telling us about the case and what led you to file this pleading?
0: Uh, sure, um, it's a relatively uh, straightforward case where my client was wrongfully um, evicted, um, and um, uh, after the eviction, the lo- the state court dismissed the lawsuit for eviction without prejudice. Um, then uh, there were some some other courts, some a federal court was involved, and it got really complicated, but. Ultimately, what happened was my client had rescinded his security instrument under the Truth and Lending Act, as, as you had noted before. And so our contention is that my client holds title by deed, and because the security instrument that was encumbering that prior deed, because that security instrument was rescinded, under the Truth and Lending Act, as a matter of law, when it was mailed, as a consequence, my client's deed remains, and nothing that happened afterward, the non-judicial foreclosure stuff that happened, none of that is, is relevant at all, we contend, because you cannot foreclose a rescinded trust deed. Okay, so the, the first thing to note, and and, as i'm talking here today i'd like everybody to know that i'm only referring to oregon law um laws differ widely by state as you mentioned neil this oregon is a non-judicial foreclosure state which means that banks can obtain foreclosure without going to court what they need to do under oregon law the oregon trust deed act is They need to record um, these documents that appoint successor trustees in order to to have the power of sale in the event of foreclosure. So this is all – it's a substitute for a lawsuit, if you will. But here's the problem. Because there's no judge looking over what the banks are doing, if they make a mistake, right, due process requires – that a person have an ability to challenge what happened in the real property records as opposed to what might have happened in a court proceeding. So number one, if, if you've been um, foreclosed in a non-judicial state, I would urge that, number one, if you think it's been wrongful, you need a lawsuit. That is, the homeowner that's been wrongfully foreclosed you might believe should file some sort of a lawsuit you can't correct a record without a lawsuit you need a judge so that brings us to the point of our second motion for summary judgment what had what the bank had been contending was that my client was not entitled to any remedy because the for, the non-judicial foreclosure proceeding had had concluded, all right? There was was allegedly a sale, and my client allegedly had prior notice of the sale. He allegedly had notice that the sale occurred. And then sometime later, the client files a lawsuit um, uh, to reverse that sale. And the banks, they always say this, you can't do that now because you had prior notice of the sale. And that is a misstatement of Oregon law. There is a a, uh, recent uh, case in Oregon from the Oregon um, Court of Appeals called Wolf versus GMAC Mortgage LLC. And the issue there was whether uh, in the absence of a validly appointed trustee, the court said, there is no trustee at all for purposes of the act. Meaning, if the if the the beneficiary of the trustee, right, whoever for whose benefit the, the loan was 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 given, the security was given. If that beneficiary does not appoint a successor trustee, or or if, um, or if a successor trustee has been appointed. And it, the appointment purports to do this by uh, through the signature of somebody that is an attorney, in fact, what we call a power of attorney, that power of attorney also has to be recorded so that a neutral person later looking at the real property record should be able to look and figure out what the chain of title is and say, oh, okay, this trustee was appointed from this beneficiary on this date. And there was a. It was done with a durable power, a power of attorney, and that power of attorney was in fact recorded. Okay, yada yada yada. And then if if everything was recorded perfectly, then the foreclosure was good. What we're talking about is when some stranger to title comes in, and these papers are just perhaps dummied up, and their the beneficiary has not appointed a successor trustee or the the person that that made the appointment through a power of attorney that power of attorney has not been recorded okay so the lesson from wolf is that just because the the non-judicial foreclosure by advertisement and sale just because that has already occurred does not mean that you don't have a judicial remedy You may very well have a judicial remedy, but you won't know until you hire a lawyer and figure out what the chain of title shows. And if, um, if everything was done uh, according to Hoyle, if you will, how am I doing so far, Neil?
2: You're doing great. I want to, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, Sure. One is, uh, well, it's sort of, what is a beneficiary? The if, not if, in your case, the note and mortgage are gone, so the trust deed is gone, so do we not have absence of beneficiary entirely?
0: Yeah, well, what happened in this particular case, the beneficiary, it uh, was the person that that um, made the loan, it was Washington Mutual, and... Some after my client rescinded under the Truth and Lending Act, many of your listeners might remember that Washington Mutual in September 2008 was um, uh, basically taken over by the FDIC and the largest bank failure in U.S. history. So what what our case is about is the the beneficiary WAMU received this notice of rescission. And then, under the Truth and Lending Act, they had 20 days from March 29, 2008, for example, to either file suit against the homeowner or refund all of the homeowner's earnest money. Neither of those two events occurred. Instead, the bank itself failed six months later. Okay. So we contend that after WAMU, failed, it was incapable of ever appointing a successor trustee. And in fact, um, no person legitimately representing Washington Mutual Bank had ever filed an appointment of a successor trustee, which means that although somebody did purport to do an advertisement and sale, we contend that the person that did that had no lawful authority to do that because they had not been appointed by the beneficiary, Washington Mutual, before it was overtaken by FDIC. Did I answer your question? Sort of.
2: (laughs) Maybe I'm phrasing my question incorrectly. Uh, How could they be appointed uh, no, let me put it this way. A beneficiary can appoint a successor trustee. So, yes, if they are a beneficiary, which means they own the debt because they paid for it, then mm-hmm. they can appoint a successor trustee. Right. But, can only appoint a successor trustee under a valid deed of trust. If the deed of trust has been rescinded, all you got left is the debt, right?
0: Right. It's unsecured. That's that's Unsec- that's, that, that, that's a good point, and that was that was our contention in our first motion for summary judgment, which was denied by this particular court. So that is so, okay. the impetus. Impotence... Go ahead. So yeah, I, I I get
2: that, and 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 one of the frustrating things about defending foreclosures is when judges do things like that. Um, uh, should there be an effort to cancel the instruments of record on the basis? of the I know Oregon has a, a procedure for doing that uh, on the basis that they no longer have any legal validity
0: Um are, are you referring to instrument instruments recorded um in in the real property records Yes, yes. I'm sorry yes mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so um I, I think your question is, you know, how might a um a homeowner um that's been wrongfully foreclosed get into court? What what kinds of of causes of action are available? And uh, right. there are several. The the one that my client chose is is called um statutory ejectment and What's, what's interesting about Oregon's statutory ejectment uh, cause of action is the statute it, itself explains exactly what allegations need to be made, okay? And uh, I'll read it quickly. Uh, ORS 105.010, contents of complaint. The plaintiff in the complaint shall set forth. One, the nature of the estate of the plaintiff and the property, whether it be in fee, for life or for a term of years, including when necessary for whose life and the duration of the term. Two, that the plaintiff is entitled to the possession thereof. Three, that the defendant wrongfully withholds the property from the plaintiff to the damage of the plaintiff for such sum as is therein claimed. And lastly, four, a description of the property with such certainty as to enable the possession thereof to be delivered if there is recovery. So basically, if somebody else, is in possession of your real property, and you contend that they should not be in possession of the real property because you own it, but somebody else is occupying it, you can file a statutory ejectment action if you make those, 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 those four allegations. Then what's fascinating in Oregon, the statute also sets forth what the answer must do. That's the uh, 105.015. The defendant shall not be allowed to give in evidence any estate license or right of possession in the property in the defendant or another, unless the same is pleaded in the answer. If pleaded the nature and duration of the estate license or right of possession shall be set forth with certainty and particularity required in a complaint. And it goes on. And
2: that's, that's where you
0: have them. I think I well I I, I hope so. Um, I'm only an advocate. I'm I'm not a judge. Well, I'm not guaranteeing a result either. But that's that's the strongest
2: point because all you're doing is saying, look, if they want to defend against this, then let them plead it. But if they right. refuse to plead it, then then don't
0: let them talk. Right, and then. What, what, what tends to happen in cases like this is the bank will say, well, wait a second, um, We, uh, the people that we sold the property to are in possession and they have title because we sold it to them after a lawful foreclosure. And if you think otherwise, you should prove that the foreclosure was unlawful. And that's where we say, no, you've got it wrong. All we have to do in order to obtain possession, is make these four allegations. We hold title by virtue of an unencumbered deed as a consequence of a rescission of, a, of, an, of an encumbrance under the Truth and Lending Act. And then we contend that if the defendants believe that they have title as a consequence of a lawful foreclosure, they need to plead that and they need to prove it and if they can't, they should lose.
2: Right, right. That's what I thought was so artful, and just the concept of it was was elegant. It is elegant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that is off to you for for the way that you you came out that and the way you executed it. I think it, it's it's really a model for all of us as lawyers uh, to, uh, to follow so Bill how long is this litigation been oh it's
3: uh, going on at least a year at this point um, trial is scheduled for February but I'm hoping that uh, uh, as Russ is that this latest summary judgment should move to many of the other uh, issues but you know, the entire uh, litigation is obviously when the other side, as Russ points out, it's a kind of your, uh, what you lawyers point out is if the law is not on your side, uh, you, you, you plead facts. If the facts aren't on your side, you plead the law. And if neither are on your side, you pound fists. Well, we've been getting a lot of fist pounding and. Uh, name calling and temper tantrums and everything else uh, uh, from the other side which is uh gets old after a while but the, up until this point anyway we'll see the response but um the position that they're really relying on or trying it, it's all based on getting the court to simply ignore the effect of Tila rescission. and and this is something that's been going on in these cases all across the country uh people are trying to go in to get some sort of declaratory relief as to the effect of their rescission. Um, I know uh, my case has been, uh, in my federal case, it's been cited in numerous jurisdictions, at least 16 Article Three courts across the country, uh, as to the effect of rescission, and it's getting extreme pushback and hostility from the courts. So um, I, I think at some point, um the this this is going to need to be readdressed as to the effect that, that, that the highest court and the, the supreme court's going to have to uh probably re and and come down and rule on this because uh the door is getting slammed shut and the courts appear at least to this point would be ignoring its the effect and and this is really that's why this ejectment action and the ejectment statute in Oregon is uh is very unique and it's a, it's a great avenue uh, because this is all about title and possession, simply title. And, of course, rescission doesn't require the effect. The rescission doesn't require any adjudication. Uh, the Supreme Court's already determined its effect. And so trying to go in and, and get a court to declare your rights as to the effect, I mean, it's again, it's a nonjudicial remedy. Um, and so, therefore, if you're talking about title, which I review every day in my business, uh, if I have evidence that there's a valid rescission, I mean, clearly that affects title. It means that it, uh, that security instruments void ab initio as though it never existed. And so, therefore, it uh, becomes sort of, I guess you, you, you can concur that it's a legal impossibility to uh, continue moving forward, trying to uh, pretend as though it still exists in the form of declaring a default and uh, foreclosure and so on.
2: Yeah,
0: uh, let, I, I'd like I, to. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. I'd like to throw something else in you know, as as far as um, discovery. Um, uh, my recommendation would be for any uh, lawyer that's representing a homeowner or a homeowner pro se, um, as you're going through this, you really want to make requests for discovery to learn what a subsequent purchaser knew. About claims to title and claims that the prior um, eviction or foreclosure was wrongful, because oftentimes the subsequent purchaser from a trustee will claim, "Oh well, hey, my hands are clean. I didn't know that there was there was a competing claim to title and." I came in with good money up front, and I'm a bona fide purchaser for value, so I'm not responsible for any of this stuff. Um, if If you go through diligently with discovery, it is likely that you'll find out that the prospective purchaser actually knew that the person that was previously in possession and had title had made a claim. And so, therefore, they're not a bona fide purchaser.
2: In fact, they that, used that part of the bargaining process to make their purchase price lower.
1: Exactly. Because the
2: property was not merely distressed; it was still uh, in litigation
0: or disputed. Right. So, and a lot of these people. A lot of these people will, you know, of course, have purchased title insurance. So you should also get discovery from the title insurer and the escrow office. And you may very well discover there that they had their own concerns about whether or not the nonjudicial foreclosure was completed in an appropriate manner and or if they were missing documents um, and so forth.
2: So what do you do, Russ, when, you know, we, we've all seen thousands, in my case, Of situations where documents are executed and recorded in the in in county records, where the signature block finally lists a bunch of entities, and then finally says by so and so as attorney in fact, and there's not even a reference to power of attorney as to date or parties or anything. What yeah, what do you do with that?
0: Well, um it's problematic, but that's that's that kind of highlights the importance of you know figuring out a way to make the bank prove that what they did was satisfactory in in every way. Right? So you want the burden of we contend the burden of proof should be put on the bank to show a correct non-judicial foreclosure, rather than being on the homeowner to show that it was wrongful, because it's very difficult to prove a negative. Then, if you're if you're confronted with a, a, an appointment of a successor trustee that purports to have been signed by an attorney, in fact, and there's no date or anything on that, what I would do is I would get a um, uh, I would hire. A, a different title company to run some plant time and uh, to, um, um what I mean by that is to get uh, you don't want title insurance but you, you want to have a list of all of the documents that were filed that would support this foreclosure so a title company is called plant times so you basically hire them on an hourly basis and they give you the documents that you're looking for or they'll tell you that they don't do not exist and in this case, I would I would look to find that although um, the appointment of successor trustee purports to be signed by someone that has a power of attorney, if there's no recorded power of attorney, and it in the real property records, and typically those are recorded at the same time the appointment is recorded, or it, it's it's probably illegitimate. Okay, if there's no recorded power of attorney. Um, I think you've got a really good case for saying that the the foreclosure was wrongful because we have no way of knowing that the person that appointed the successor trustee was actually an attorney in fact because there's no record of it.
2: Yeah, yeah and, and the
3: interesting the, part I want to add to that is in the discovery we've obtained. I mean, we have the foreclosing alleged foreclosing party, J.P. Morgan Chase. Saying that not only could they not find an original one, but they didn't have any processes in place during that time period uh, to track and and keep track of these uh, power of attorneys given these authorities. And so uh, there's a good chance that if you had a WAMU loan during, uh, after the crash at some points, foreclosed non judicially, you might want to definitely take a look uh, at that appointment of successor trustee, because a lot of them in Oregon were uh, coming out of uh, a Northwest trustee up in Washington that was one of the primary uh, players there. Um, but again, this Wolf case, I, I, I think it gives hope. I think it really does to um, getting past this whole argument of finality to the sale that they've been trying to push.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, has disturbed me for uh, as long as I've been looking at this uh, is that I get that race judicata applies when a matter has been litigated to conclusion uh, with, with a verdict and findings of fact and, and judgment entered. But in a non-judicial foreclosure What the banks are arguing, they're not saying raise judicata, at least not that I know of, uh, but they are essentially arguing raise judicata. What they're saying is, because we had the sale, matter's over. And because we have a statutory scheme that replaces... uh, a judicial foreclosure scheme, even though we have a judicial foreclosure scheme in Oregon, um, that the uh, uh, in the in the case of non judicial foreclosure, the sale should be treated the same as a final judgment. So. I think one of the things that you're talking about, Russ, is confronting these types of arguments where they rely on on argument rather than law or fact, like Bill was saying. Um, uh, in order to get the judge thinking in terms of finality, to judicata, collateral, estoppel, what have you, instead of looking at the sale for what it is, a clerical function where the issues of the case have not been litigated to conclusion and there's been no judgment entered on the fact. Um, and in fact, in many cases, the uh, uh, no evidence was ever admitted into the record.
0: Right, yeah. Um, and i in oregon I'm, it, it, i think it's useful to think about well um if there's been a sale how long would a homeowner have after a sale to someone else the nonjudicial you know foreclosure advertisement sale how long would a homeowner have to challenge that um that uh, that sale um post um afterward and the answer to that, at least in Oregon, is um, uh, the statute of limitations is ten years for the recovery of real property held by someone else. And for the, so right. the lawyers that's out there, possession. say that again. That's the that's the law of adverse possession. That that's what drives the law of adverse possession, right? So here in Oregon, we have a common law uh, adverse possession. Um, Right, and then we've also got a statutory adverse possession claim that that heightens the the the, the burden of production and risk of non persuasion to the person claiming adverse possession to clear and convincing evidence, and that went into effect January one nineteen ninety. So it, it's kind of interesting how yeah you know the the, the law is kind of a seamless web it's it's it, ordinarily we don't think of adverse possession being you know uh, th- that's not what banks are doing but that's what the the, the it's the limitation period the statute limitation period that drives this so at least in Oregon you've got 10 years after you've lost possession of your property in order to make a challenge post sale
2: And in Florida, I guess we'll conclude with this, in Florida and other states, there are specific statutes that are designed to clear title on all these, what I would call wrongful illegal foreclosures. In Florida, for example, I believe the statute says you have one year to recover title. After that you can only recover Damages And many other states have adopted Similar Many other states have adopted similar statutes And Florida You know knows A lot about screwed up title They had the Murphy Act in the 1930s Where they had to pass another Similar act that basically said Okay we know it's screwed up But as of this point in time It's Whatever it is 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 set forth in the record and in this statute. So I want to thank Russ Baldwin, Attorney Oregon, for exquisite pleading and being a great guest. And as usual, thank you to Bill Padalo for assisting on the show and uh, uh, being such a great resource. Thanks
1: Neil and happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to the Neil Garfield show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at the living lines blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the hosts, and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.